It's November 19, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then we'll hear about a couple of cool projects from our news guests. And joining us today is uh, David Atchison from Transition Oahu to tell us about a cool mapping project. And then we have Matt Sullivan, who's calling in from the Bay Area to tell us about Start Hawaii. Finally, we've invited Gerard Fryer and Mel Kaku from the city's Department of Emergency Management to tell us about new thinking in tsunami predictions, including extreme tsunamis and updated tsunami evacuation maps. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. Despite a contentious groundbreaking last month, the 30-meter telescope project is moving forward. And as construction of the $1.4 billion International Astronomy Project gets underway, TMT officials are working on delivering on promises made to be good neighbors to Hawaii Island residents. Last week, the TMT formally launched its Think Fund, a $1 million annual commitment to support STEM education on the Big Island. The uh, Hawaii Island New Knowledge Fund was proposed years Years ago, but last week brought the first founding gift and more details on how it will work. The money will be administered by two local nonprofit foundations the Hawaii Community Foundation, which was allocated three quarters of the $1 million, and the Pauaki Foundation, which will work with $250,000. Both foundations will set their own award criteria for evaluating and funding educational grants, scholarships, and endowments. The Hawaii Community Foundation will be ready to accept grant applications beginning tomorrow and scholarship applications on December 1st. HCF will focus on Hawaii Island STEM student activities in and after school, internship programs, and teacher-generated STEM classroom projects. The Pauai Foundation will focus on scholarships and aims to specifically help the Native Hawaiian students. Their scholarship application process will come online in February. Overall, the Think Fund will receive $1 million er- for every year the TMT has a ground lease atop Mauna Kea with the uh, University of Hawaii at Hilo. TMT Community Affairs Manager Sandra Dawson said in a statement, As a mother of two teachers, I'm so pleased with the Think Fund's potential to furnish Hawaii Island students with an easier path to reach for the stars. This will not only help Hawaii Island students go go and get into college, it will also help provide students with the means to get through college. And, you know, we've always been big supporters of STEM and and how, uh, you know, it it contributes to sort of the uh, pool of students going into those fields and and with the hope that, uh, you know, there are the jobs available once they get out. But uh, it's great that, you know, the uh, TMT, as long as they're having the lease renewed, you know, on the Big Island, on Mauna Kea, uh, they'll be giving $1 million to yeah, this and, effort. And for as long as we've covered the TMT story, this has been something that has been in the works, and it's good that, that now that construction has started, it's the triggering event to start the first year for this. They've also done other events, of course, the Pacific Astronomy and Engineering Summit, which is for trying to basically build the workforce pipeline on the Big Island. I mean, basically addressing criticisms that a lot of these international astronomy projects you know, bring a lot of people in, mm-hmm. but don't necessarily mm-hmm. help the local community. So we'll be keeping track of that. Yes. Last week, stargazers and space enthusiasts were on the edges of their seats as the European Space Agency landed a spacecraft on the surface of a comet, culminating a 10-year journey through space and netting the best look yet at one of our solar system's most compelling celestial bodies. One of the reasons comets are so interesting to scientists, though, is because they could be the way the key ingredients for life were first delivered to Earth. And new research announced this week out of UH Manoa proved in a laboratory that this improbable event is indeed possible in space. 
Specifically, chemistry department researchers say they demonstrated that glycerol, a key molecule in the origins of the life on, on life on Earth, could have formed in space more than 4 billion years ago. Glycerol is the smallest structural and biological unit of all known living organisms on Earth. The details were published in a German chemistry journal explaining the methods they used to recreate in a laboratory how glycerol could have been formed in astrophysically relevant ices by ionizing radiation in interstellar space. The molecule could then be carried by meteorites and comets to Earth. The researchers cooled an ultra-high vacuum chamber to 5 Kelvin or 5 degrees above absolute zero. They then simulated icy sand grains, coating them with alcohol and methanol, then them with high-energy electrons, similar to cosmic rays in space. The result was the formation of complex organic compounds, specifically glycerol. Their findings challenge alternative theories that glycerol and other prebiotic cells were synthesized on Earth under hydrothermal conditions. The researchers want to take things to the next level and create an inventory of bio-relevant molecules under space-like conditions. Well, you know, the uh, uh, phyle, who, um, well, the satellite that landed on the comet, uh, did sniff out some organic uh, material. Right. Now, it, it's just what they could detect in the atmosphere or whatever atmosphere of the comet, and they haven't really done the analysis of that organic material, but heck, maybe it is glycerol. Well, you know, I, I even remember as a, as a kid in school and kind of wondering what was it that in the vacuum cold of space, if, if it got zapped in a certain way that would start that thing or start life. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to say that, okay, we've done it in a laboratory. It's conditions like space. And they are actually really looking to go as far as like, for example, creating nucleotides, you mm-hmm, know, a key mm-hmm. to RNA, the replication of living organisms. They want to do that in a similar space-like I, environment. Yeah, you know, I just think it's fascinating because, you know, I always assumed the water on the Earth was always there, right? So, you know, now to think that the possibility that it could have been delivered by a comet, I mean, I think just opens up all these possibilities. Absolutely. And here's a couple of events we wanted to share with you. Also on a tech calendar on the Big Island this Friday, a meeting will be held at the Waikoloa Marriott to discuss ways to develop a high-tech community on the on Hawaii Island. Topics will range from attracting and retaining talent, connecting R&D with industries and startups, and expanding education and training programs. And for more information, you can contact the Hawaii Island Workforce and Economic Development Ohana at hi, H-I-We-Do-Hawaii.org. Um, as far as hackathons, we recently talked about Startup Weekend. Well, there's one coming up on Sunday, November 23rd. This is the International Women's Hackathon. This event will take place at ProtoHub in Kaka'ako with organizers partnering with Microsoft to build apps that will benefit disaster relief and the nature conservancy. This event is open to women of all skill levels. Winning teams will have their Pitches posted on the Microsoft Research website. They'll be entered for a chance to have their app featured in the Microsoft Store as well as other prizes. For more information, you can visit hpuiwh2014.challengepost.com. And, and don't worry, yeah. we will have the link <laughs> on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. Uh, oh, well, very good. <laughs> and now we have David Atchison here, and he's uh, from Transition Oahu's Shareable Resource Resources Project. And, of course, he's going to talk about uh, Transitions Oahu as well. We want to welcome David to the show. Hi. It's great to be here. So Transition, Transition Oahu, tell us a little bit about that. Well, Transition Oahu, like a number of transition initiatives around the world, uh, what we're really about is creating more resilient communities, recognizing the challenges now and coming from 
declining cheap energy, climate change, and also financial instability, such as we saw at the end of 2008. Mm -hmm. So the projects that we work on, it really depends on who comes forward and gets involved. But typical transition projects involve growing more of our own food, so workshops on food production, permaculture, et cetera. We helped promote some of the permaculture design courses that have been uh, doing so well on on this island and others. Um, Things related to transportation and energy, also resources that we can share. Um, We put together a together with Positive Media Hawaii, something called ShareFest Oahu mm-hmm. that took place in September. You may have heard about it. was up at it. UH, right? Yes, at I UH Sustainability Courtyard. Yeah. So that's an example of the kinds of things we do. So you mentioned that this is one of many such organizations around the world. Right. Um, I'm kind of curious about the history of the organization here. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 uh, um, community-minded. It's trying to do good. But, you know, how did you get involved? How did it come into being? Well, about um, I, I arrived on this island in 2011, and at that time, I think Transition Oahu, I was very glad when I did a Google search to find a transition group here. And I think it had been going about a year at that time and started off, as most trans- transition groups do, with a lot of awareness raising, so hosting film screenings. Uh, one of the early events when I arrived was Richard Heinberg, author of um, Peak Everything. He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of a peak oil right. uh, writer and researcher. He was here. Um, I got involved in the, took the first permaculture design course here in Transition Oahu, helped promote those and get that off the ground. Uh, so that's that's how I got involved. And we've got a, a board now. We're, we're all volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the interesting things about being an island-wide transition initiative is that um, some transition initiatives are town-based. Like, let's say there was a transition Kailua. It would be doing hyper-local projects. As an island-wide transition initiative, what we do is help make more visible all the great things that are kind of related to transition already happening, because it's sure a hotbed of environmentally-minded things and innovative things, and we can help people see that Mm -hmm. as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now, um, later in the show, we're going to be talking about maps, and we really love maps, and Mm -hmm. one of the things that we were very excited to hear about, in fact, I think that was why uh, we specifically sought you out, is that there's a resource mapping project that Transition Oahu is building. Can you tell us about that specifically? Sure, and I think a mapping project will be a great way for us to help reveal what's already happening on the island. So one of the things that um, we're going to do at an event that we've got coming up, it's actually our our uh, Thanksgiving potluck that we're going to have at ProtoHub next week on Thanksgiving Day itself, 2 to 5 p.m. We, we're going to sort of um, kick off uh, our mapping project, which we've been talking about for a while. And what this would be is it depends on it, – it's an early stage, so people who get involved now can really help shape it. But some things that you might see on this map, some various layers, include food production. So we might have a layer that shows farms that are – uh, producing food for consumption here on Hawaii, uh, probably you know, organic farms. We would specialize in showing those. Uh, we might show the restaurants that kind of have a niche in serving food that's sourced locally. Uh, we might show some co-ops, like there's one over in Waimanalo that's getting going. That would, I'm sure, show up on that same layer. We might have another layer that shows shared resources, mm-hmm. like the co-working spaces, the maker spaces, uh, things of that nature. Good. So are you thinking of uh, having the community perhaps provide where these locations are and then create some sort of 
open database that people can feed into and then have have maybe some of the creative uh, coders and developers come up with an application that shows all of these locations? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we really do see, we want to use an open source tool. So that's one of the things to be decided. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be Google Maps? Will it be OpenStreetMap? Mm-hmm. And we're glad to have this connection with the tech community. Um, I know the invitation has been put out to some of the tech the tech meetup group, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good potential collaboration between these communities. And I think um, there is the chance once we have that in, in the database to have an app so that when you're out and about and you want to get lunch and you want it to be local food, you could look it up perhaps and, and attend. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think this project is coming up at right just the right time. Started weekend this past weekend. One of the winning groups was localfresh.me, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. trying to find – uh, restaurants that serve locally sourced food, and of course, uh, with some of the civic hacking pro- pro- projects that Bert and I have been involved in, you have uh, Esri, Royce Jones doing a lot of great work about mapping, in particular, a great platform. So, uh, I think uh, some things could happen. Tell us one more time where and when this uh, this meetup will take place. Sure. So it's our uh, transition Oahu potluck, and now also tech meetup. It's happening at Proto Hub, mm-hmm. the new uh, co working space innovation hub in Kakaako, and that's at. Um, 458 Keave Street, and it's from 2 to 5 p.m. On and Thursday, on Thursday Thanksgiving 26th. itself. Got we it. actually we did a Thanksgiving potluck last year. We didn't know if anyone would come, and about 30 people came. <laughs> so we thought, wow, let's do this again. Very interesting. Yep. When there's food. Thanks, Dave, for joining us. Sure. You can find out more on transitionwahoo.org. Sounds good. And we'll put that uh, show note, I mean, the uh, website up on our show notes. And, of course, joining us now by phone from the Bay Area is Matt Sullivan, and he's online there to tell us about Start Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, guys. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, sure. So uh, tell us a little bit about Start Hawaii. I kind of just heard about it in the grapevine. I I haven't really uh, seen too much about it, but, uh, you know, you got a first chance here to tell everybody what Start Hawaii is all about. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So... Start Hawaii kind of came out of our experiences at different accelerators in the Bay Area. So I was, my company, StoryTree, mm-hmm. um, was in an accelerator called 500 Startups. And one of the big benefits of being in the network of 500 Startups is the community of founders that help you. And I realized that it's, it's still difficult as a young founder to really build a, a successful company. And it's a very difficult thing. And I feel like what, one of the pieces that's missing in Hawaii is um, a deep connection to founders who are starting companies. And I feel like um, one of the strengths that we're bringing is connecting founders that aren't in Hawaii, um, but also are on the mainland or internationally. So mm-hmm. the purpose of Start Hawaii is to connect those people with founders in Hawaii and build this community of people with experience who can help each other out. That's now we've great, been, you've been following your your projects for some time. Of course, there was Story Tree, the app to help tell a story well, and then I think uh, Simple Prints also to get into photo printing books. And now you're in the Bay Area. I mean, you're uh, basically charting the path that many uh, local entrepreneurs and startups want to follow. Um, as you've mentioned, there are there are accelerators here, there are mentorship programs. But I think one of the things that uh, you can uniquely add, of course, is a live link to the Bay Area. What I mean, the hotbed where a lot of people. Uh, are doing innovative things and, and coming up with innovative processes to help build a business um, as they happen. Is that uh, one of the things that you think uh, Start Hawaii will be able to, to, to offer? Yeah, that's exactly it. And the reception has been phenomenal so far. People have been wanting to do this, actually. So I've, you know, we've reached out to two dozen people, founders who have started companies or building companies, and 
the common response is, wow, I've been thinking of this exact thing. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. So I think there's a lot of potential for this. Um, I think people from Hawaii who aren't in Hawaii genuinely want to help out the community, but I think it's, it's a hard thing to do because everyone's so busy. I think if we can create a way that's easy enough for them to contribute, um, you know, it's very simple things. It's, you know, connections is one thing, but, for example, we build mobile apps. Um, we know metrics very well for, you know, what should you be seeing as a baseline for share rates on Facebook or what happens if you put a video on your splash page? What does it do to your conversions? These are all things that you learn from experience, and the market is moving so quickly that these, ch- these things change very quickly, and I think you really need people who are building companies on the ground to be a part of the conversation to really help companies succeed in Hawaii. So, so, Matt, tell us a little bit about how somebody here might be able to participate in Start Hawaii. I'm glad you asked. Um, so we're looking for founders who are actively building startups in mm-hmm. Hawaii to join the community. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we've, been, we've been reaching out to a lot of people who aren't in Hawaii um, to kind of get this thing going to get started. And now we're looking for people in Hawaii, and we want to connect the two. I think people from the mainland and living internationally are really excited about helping out people in Hawaii, and I think people in Hawaii are really excited about talking to people, you know, in the Bay Area, um, do working you, on startups. Do you have anybody on the ground here helping to kind of promote Start Hawaii? Um, I, I don't. Um, I've spoken with Ray Chum from the Box Jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been in touch for a while now, and mm-hmm. um, he's been really excited about this. Um, there's a few others on the island, but, you know, we don't have a point person. Um, my... Uh, co-partner in this, Lennon Buckley, is going to be in town, I think, next week, um, meeting with some people, trying to connect with the community um, and get people involved. So what would you say, how would you envision maybe the format or the, the, the bounds of Start Hawaii as, a, as an organization? Is it a is it a group? Is it on a platform of some t- type? Is it an email list? You know, um, uh, you're looking for, and looking for specific people who have exactly the right kind of either needs or talents to offer. But I, I, I'm always wondering how uh, you can see, especially when um, there's this link with the Bay Area, how that interaction yeah. might take place. I, so I think it's a it's a difficult thing to pull off. I think because oftentimes the community is not focused enough. People with interest. I think the trick is going to be keeping a pretty tight focus and try to maintain really high quality conversations. And I think. We're modeling it after um, what some of these startup accelerators, especially 500 startups, have in the Bay Area. And then basically it's, a, it's a, a forum where you post a question and people can respond to it. And it's a private network, mm-hmm. um, so you're not afraid, you know, someone's, you know, anyone's going to see it. Only mm-hmm. people in the network will see it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we're starting with. And it, I think that it's proven to work in the Bay Area, and I think it'll work in Hawaii, too. Um, where we go from there... Um, is kind of unknown. There's a lot of different directions we could take this, but I think getting started is the uh, is the first step. Okay, so tell us where can we go to find Start Hawaii? I kind of sort of guess, but uh, you know, yeah. I, want, I want you to tell me. Uh, you go to starthawaii.org. Okay, and um, then uh, and if you just anyone who's interested should send me an email, Matt at starthawaii.org. Great, and so you're up and running and ready to accept uh, uh, founders. We are um, fantastic. We have a list. Sounds good. Uh, we're actually building the website, and we're going to release it to everyone on the list shortly. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay, and that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, 
We'll be joined by Gerard Fryer and Mel Kaku and talk about revisions to the tsunami inundation maps. What brought about these changes to the way we draw these maps and, in fact, the way we think about tsunamis? We'd, of course, love your questions. As part of that conversation, feel free to call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio, so you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Ivy Ledbetter Lee is known as the father of public relations after he gave his boss, John D. Rockefeller, some advice following a massacre at a Colorado mine. Ivy Lee told Rockefeller that the best thing to do was to show both sides of the situation and to let the reporters in. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Michael Mead, storyteller and mythologist and author of Finding Genius in Your Life. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the essential genius in each person. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Gerard Fire and Mel Kaku. Uh, Gerard is the senior geophysicist over at NOAA's Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. He also provides tsunami warning, public outreach about tsunami hazards, and advice to civil authorities on extra historical hazards. Right. Uh, Mel, meanwhile, is the director of the Department of Emergency Management at the city and county of Honolulu. He oversees emergency response to natural disasters. And what does history tell us about tsunamis? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Gerard and Mel, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, uh, Gerard, you know, we, you and I, we chatted a a while back about, uh, uh, you know, these um, potential for extreme tsunamis. And and, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to sort of tell us from from a research and scientific standpoint, what is it that really reinvigorated the interest in this, and and why is it so timely at this point in time? The Japan tsunami, okay. 2011. That, that's really what did it. Mm-hmm. Um, we seismologists thought they understood earthquakes. They thought they understood how big earthquakes could be at various places around the world. And, and initially, well, after the Sumatra earthquake in 2004, which caused the Indian Ocean tsunami, which was, which was in a place where we didn't expect it and it was way too big, the, the penny didn't quite drop. But then when Japan happened and there was another magnitude 9 earthquake where we didn't think that magnitude 9 earthquakes happened, we realized that, that we had been misled by the, by the short duration of, of the historical record. And... Uh, um, in fact, 
uh, you know, you can't really. You know, we, we had always thought that with only a hundred, with 150 years of, of understanding mm-hmm. for, for each subduction zone where the big earthquakes happen, that we sort we could sort of figure out more or less how each one of them behaved. Mm-hmm. So we knew that Chile could have really big earthquakes. We knew Alaska could have really big earthquakes. And then we thought that as you as you head uh, west across the Pacific, that the earthquakes get smaller and smaller. And we always thought that Japan would never get more than a magnitude 8.3 earthquake. Is that right? So so and, this was really an eye-opener. And then, wham, they get hit with a magnitude 9. And then if you go back and you really delve into the records, you discover, oh, they did have another one just like this back in the year 869. So that was a th- this was a thousand-year event. And, and and that immediately had me concerned because I realized that, that the preparation that we have made in Hawaii was very similar to the preparation they've made in Japan, namely that we have, we have taken a, a more or less a 100 or 200-year perspective on hazard. And, and the consequences of being hit by the 1,000-year hazard we saw uh, in Japan, the consequences are so dire that that we really have to change our ways. We really have to use that as as a. Uh, uh, we have to learn from that. That that tragedy c- cannot be in vain. Mm-hmm. We we must take advantage of it. One of the uh, things that we covered on the show just a few months ago was the uh, discovery of the sinkhole and some evidence of of. Um, ocean debris that was deposited in this sinkhole that was a fair elevation above sea level. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that, was, that was discovered by, by uh, David Burney, um, the, um, who, who was uh, director of the National, uh, National Tropical Botanical Gardens. Um, and he, he did that work back in the 90s, very careful work. I mean, it was clearly a tsunami. Um, and it was all very interesting to tsunami scientists, and we thought, well, I wonder how that got there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we were thinking of sources, and, and we, we all thought, oh, it had to be something to the south because it's on the south shore. Um, and it really wasn't until until the Japan earthquake that that you know we started looking at at how bad things could get um, in the Hawaiian Islands, um, and then. Uh, uh, seismologist Rhett Butler started, he came to the warning center and, and played with our codes and put in really big earthquakes. And uh, and he realized, oh, a big tsunami from the north could do it if the earthquake is big enough. If the wavelength of the waves is long enough, then it, it lifts up the ocean all around the island. And and this is a significant tsunami. Uh, on the south shore, the, the tsunami has to be at least 25 feet high. Um, to, and that's just that's just to get into that sinkhole. It has to be maybe five feet higher than that to carry all the stuff that it carried in. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I mean, I, I might need a little help with scale. So, uh, 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 twenty-five, thirty-five foot tsunami sounds enormous, um, and it's a, we're saying okay, now we need to look at a bigger historical record, a thousand-year event. Um, what were we preparing for? What was Japan preparing for up until that point in terms of size and a, and a hundred-year event? Uh, they were. They were they were thinking about um, thirty foot waves more or less. I mean that was uh, if they had been hit only by thirty foot waves, then then the Fukushima Daiichi power plant would still be operational. Oh, yes. um, they uh, they they knew they had lots of earthquakes in their history, and they they knew how fast the plates are moving together. So they figured out theoretically how much strain, sh- how, how much deformation should be stored in the system. 
and 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 so then therefore they figured, okay, we can get an earthquake up to this size. We've had enough earthquakes that all of the strain is being released, so so nothing should be bigger than anything we've seen in recent history. Well, it turns out that that was a, a bit hubristic, you know, that, that there was a little bit of energy left over after each earthquake, and then after, you know, you have one big, say, a magnitude eight earthquake every fifty or hundred years. After a dozen of those, <laughs> there's enough left over for a magnitude nine, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, now we have uh, uh, Mel Kaku also here in the studio from uh, Department of Emergency Management, and and normally, I, I, uh, I think the sort of the process is. Gerard, I mean, you're you're monitoring 24/7 the occurrences that are happening across the globe. You're looking at all the earthquakes that are taking place, and 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 if there is a potential for a tsunami, at what point in time do you sort of hand it over to, uh, not hand it over, but you know, sort of notify uh, the the folks at DEM, and and then I, I want to kind of let you know Mel kind of tell us like what is it that he does at that point in time? Uh, well, if it's if it's big enough to warrant a warning. Um, well, we will uh, initially put the state into a watch, mm-hmm. and we do that automatically. Um, since there is some time before the tsunami gets to us, um, that that gives the emergency managers the opportunity to to do a quick comparison of notes, and and so there'll actually be a conference call, um, and 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 we'll tell them uh, we recommend a warning, but really they're the guys who make the decision. Although mm-hmm. they always do what what we ask. We're talking to Mel Kaku from the city's Department of Emergency Management and Gerard Fryer from NOAA's Pacific Tsunami Warning Center about revised tsunami inundation maps and extreme tsunami events. If you've got a question, we'd uh, love you to speak with the experts who are here at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. So, Mel, I mean, I, I think it was maybe in 2010 was the last time I remember a big push about updated tsunami maps, you know, the ones in your old phone books, you got to bring those up to speed. And I know that uh, logistically, from a, from a from an emergency agency point of view, that was a significant uh, undertaking. And now you have scientists saying, oh, well, you know, those maps we just updated, they were a little, you know, they, they underestimated some things and we need to make a bigger uh, drawing of where a tsunami might go. I mean, how did that get introduced to you? I mean, uh, were you prepared for the magnitude of the change in these maps? Uh, you know, the the whole effort was a collaboration of all the science uh, community as well as the emergency managers. Obviously, as uh, Dr. Fryer has already indicated, uh, there was this uh, situational awareness that perhaps maybe all the documentation was not adequate. We need to spend a little bit more time to do the analysis, the scenario studies, if you will, and then create uh, a model that could replicate uh, the worst-case scenario. Uh, Thanks to the uh, scientific community, they did go through that evaluation, and their recommendation was that we needed to look at this worst-case scenario in which um, all our previous uh, assumptions uh, was even surpassed, Mm -hmm. if you will. And Thanks to this collaborative effort of uh, the scientists working with the University of Hawaii, Dr. Uh, Chung, um, that resulted in a model uh, of the proposed, uh, you know, uh, inundations that we that the state could expect uh, for this significant extreme uh, tsunami scenario. So, taking that, uh, we 
all work together uh, collaboratively, uh, obviously, to develop, um, I, I guess, uh, plans that would take into consideration these extreme tsunami uh, run-ups, if you will. So, can you give me? An, I mean, uh, can you give me an example? I mean, I looked at the maps, and you know, under the old maps where I work in Evil A, we're like, oh, we're just outside. We're we should be okay, but under the new maps, we're not okay. So, I mean, what would be some of uh, the more drastic uh, changes in that uh, worst-case scenario? Well, one of the significant areas, uh, obviously, is the Waikiki area uh, or even the downtown area. What we previously studied and modeled uh, and created maps for was the 2010 scenario, which is now currently replicated as uh, either pink or red, if you will. And then what we did was superimpose the additional modeling efforts or results, and typically it demonstrated or at least showed um, a significant more uh, run-up into the inward uh, land areas of inner west from two to three times uh, the same depth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we, um, um, we've got a couple calls and wanted to uh, give them a chance to ask their questions. Uh, and if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689. We're talking to Mel Kaku from DEM and Gerard Fryer from the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. And uh, we had a caller that uh, just wanted to ask a quick question about the uh, the big uh, tsunami that happened in Paia about 50 years ago. Uh, is that something on record that you, you recall? Paia, Maui? Paia, Maui, 50 years ago. Well, that, that, uh, I imagine that was 1946. That, that was uh, uh, 1946 was, um, w- was the most damaging tsunami in, in Hawaii's recent, recent history. It killed 159 people throughout the state. Um, and we had, uh, it was sort of a peculiar event, and it took a long, long time to figure out why the tsunami was so large. And we now know that the tsunami was large because the earthquake was large. And where did that earthquake originate that from? That earthquake originated in the Aleutians. Ah. Um, and, and it has always been – that tsunami has always been the representative event from the Aleutians for our tsunami maps. And we figured that that was pretty close to the worst case. In fact, what happened in 1946 is the waves, the biggest waves, didn't actually strike Hawaii. They, they weren't quite aimed at Hawaii. They were aimed a little bit to the east. And, uh, and now we realize, oh, if you just took the 1946 source, and if you just moved it a couple of hundred miles westward along the Aleutians, then it would point right at us. Mm-hmm. And, and so already we have a problem that all of our in evacuation zones you know, that that they needed to be extended, mm-hmm. but it was forty six, and and it was that Paia event that that, uh, um, yeah, that, yeah, that's no, that that's uh, that's that's fascinating, and you know, I, I uh, you know, Mel, when you when you guys get involved, I mean, obviously you're looking at the uh, source of the earthquake and and getting a sense of you know what direction it's taking. Do you? Uh, also, I guess between the two of you, I mean, have a sense of the, 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 the nature of the ocean floor that acts as this wave guide that directs it toward uh, Hawaii. I mean, some perhaps from Peru or South America is going to uh, uh, sort of impact us in, in one way, depending on the ocean floor. You know, coming from Japan, it's going to be another way. But obviously, this Aleutian direction is, is almost like a direct you know, path uh, to Hawaii. I mean, what's your guys' thoughts about, you know, when these earthquakes occur and, and what the impact might potentially be? 
Well, Mel is actually all of the emergency managers are really good. They sort of uh, they they uh, they scratch their heads and look at us and and uh, and uh, and they they accept what the scientists say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but. They do understand, um, and forgive me for speaking for you, Mel. I, I, um, let me see. How, what's the, okay, just imagine, I, I, imagine a bicycle wheel mm-hmm. and, and think of Hawaii as the hub. Now, if you have, if you have earthquakes anywhere around the rim of the bicycle wheel, um, the, the tsunami is going to be projected sort of perpendicular to the rim. So it's pointed right at the hub. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the way the North Pacific is. But, but um, in, in Tonga or places like that, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like the wheel has been dented so, mm-hmm. so that the perpendicular isn't pointed at us anymore. And um, so if ever we have a big earthquake in Tonga, you know, Mel will come and say, hey, you know, this isn't going to be a big tsunami for us, is it? Because it's not pointed the right way. So, so he, he really does understand. I'm very impressed. So, Mel, yeah, you, yeah. you guys have a sense of the, you know, the uh, kind of the underwater uh, uh, topology and and what it might ultimately result uh, in terms of you know a, a tsunami size. Well, yeah, working with you know the uh, PTWC, the the Pacific uh, Tsunami Warning Center folks, uh, we depend on their analysis and data uh, to indicate to us the the expected uh, level of uh, the tsunami, if you will, and based on that we will then institutionalize uh, and implement uh, the warning process, if you will, including the evacuations. Obviously, we'll be heavily dependent on the determination between is it a 2010-type scenario or the extreme uh, tsunami. And again, uh, we uh, will work uh, collaboratively. And to that extent, uh, it was very important to come to uh, an agreement on what those evacuations own. So it's been a collaborative process uh, that we've uh, had over the last uh, six to nine months, if mm-hmm. you will, in working together to develop this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Nancy, who is uh, patiently waiting, calling in from Kailua Kona. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Hi. Um, I've been here for a couple of tsunami warnings, and um, I'm concerned because I live two blocks above the evacuation sign at this point. And I'm wondering if you guys are going to move the signs uphill um, because it's better. I just feel I don't own a car at this point, so I feel like it's better to be safe than sorry. So I wonder if, worst-case scenario, that you'll be able to say, okay, this is worst-case scenario, get up the hill. Excellent question. Well, you know, uh, Mel is 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 fully qualified to speak about the uh, Oahu, <laughs> but on the Big Island, maybe I'll have to, you know, ask Gerard to. Uh, well, the Big Island evacuation zones, um, they they bear the the uh, the imprint of Harry Kim, mm-hmm. the, the the former civil defense chief, former mayor, and uh, and he was very conservative, and and so the the evacuation zones, uh, he he added a bit of a buffer to mm-hmm. them. And of course, now what's happening is that you know we now realize, oh, we need that buffer. But but if there are going to be changes on the Big Island, the changes will be nowhere near as dramatic as as what you see on the Oahu maps. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that that um, you know here we are. We're talking about an extreme event. Uh, understand that that 
um, an earthquake that is just the right spot aimed at us that's big enough to cause significant in flooding inland from the from the current evacuation zones is a very rare event. It it has a you know it's like a thousand year event that translates to a probability of about say about five percent in fifty years. Mm-hmm. So, so in the average person's lifetime, say about a five percent chance that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I, I did, I did like her question in the sense, like, say on Oahu, um, when you're you're saying, oh, if I get past this sign, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm going to run as fast as I can to get past that sign. I mean, I guess that that is going to be a a, a, a task for your department to to work on the physical signage. Well, we're what we're working on is rather than making a, a signage and demarcating a particular line, which is very difficult. I, I think the more appropriate uh, response is we're going to be looking at evacuation routes. And as part of our uh, planning to support uh, both the 2010 as well as the ex- extreme uh, tsunami scenario, uh, we're going to be identifying uh, and mapping all of this so that people can actually go and determine where the uh, safe uh, zones are going to be. Uh, and our public messaging is going to be designed to make that discrete uh, uh, announcement so that people will know, is this a 2010 scenario or is this an extreme scenario? Right, right. And w- our identification of our what we call tsunami refuge areas are going to be accordingly uh, determined mm-hmm. also. Obviously, um, uh Working together here with the Pacific uh, Tsunami Warning Center is going to be very critical for us to make that early determination as to the um, type of scenario that we're responding to. So, you know, I think think we're going to definitely want to get into a little bit more about what you are doing with uh, your outreach effort, which I think is really excellent. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Gerard Fryer and Mel Kaku about tsunamis going across the Pacific. What are other examples of uh, changes in how far inland this water will go? And, of course, we have some callers on the line. We'd still love to hear from you as well, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, you are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Open enrollment for the Hawaii Health Connector is happening now. As new shoppers look for plans, what does the connector see in its future, and how are docs and hospitals looking at the connector? We'll talk with new connector head Jeff Kissel, Hawaii Pacific Health Executive VP Dr. Virginia Pressler, and the Executive Medical Director of the Hawaii Independent Physicians Association, Dr. Josh Green. That's this Thursday at 5 on Town Square. On the next On Being. The Islamic Reformation has been going on for decades. We see violence and we don't realize that that violence is a direct result of the Reformation, not proof that one is needed. Reza Aslan with a fresh way to understand Islam's past, present, and future. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Gerard Fryer from the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center and Mel Kaku from the city's Department of Emergency Management about responding to extreme tsunami events. And how is this extreme tsunami from Alaska or the Aleutian Islands making us rethink preparation and response? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome 
welcome uh, Clive from Makiki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, a, a question and then some context. Simple question. Inside the building or outside the building? And then some context here. Uh, I've experienced some earthquakes uh, around the world. And in Japan, it was in a seventh floor apartment complex. When the earthquake hit, we left the building, but all the Japanese people stayed on the lanai. And it seemed to me that we should get out of the building. So did they know something that we didn't? And is there any kind of statistical evidence? Hard to pinpoint, I know, but any statistical evidence that suggests all things being equal, you should be in or outside a building? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, they did know something you, you, you didn't know, and they were playing the statistics. Uh, if there's a big earthquake uh, and if you're in a building in, um, that, that is reasonably modern in the United States or just about any building in Japan, any place where there are good building codes, um, it's highly unlikely that the building is going to fall on you. Um, the, the recommendation is drop, cover, and hold on. Uh, during the earthquake, and the reason you say that we say that is because you know the building's not going to fall on you, but there may be non-structural elements in the building, like lighting fixtures and ceilings and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. We don't want people to run out of a building because things might fall off the building, and if it's a big building, they're falling a long way, and you might get squished. So yes, please stay in the building. But of course, here we're talking about tsunamis, and that's a nice excuse to talk about Waikiki and vertical evacuation. And um, so if there is a tsunami warning, um, most of the buildings in uh, – well, I guess all of the big buildings in Waikiki are, are fine places to take refuge, even from the extreme tsunami. And what it's up to the fourth floor. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, you know, our recommendation is that uh, the buildings need to be reinforced concrete or steel structured uh, and the minimum f- uh, floor to evacuate uh, – is to the fourth floor. And as Gerard has already indicated, if there is a severe earthquake, what our immediate re- uh, recommendation is uh, find a, a table, if you will, uh, to take cover and really is to protect yourself from falling debris, whether it be in the apartment uh, especially. And then uh, venturing outside is not... Uh, the, the proper thing. Right. To Despite do. what every Hollywood movie shows yes. you is uh, don't leave the building and run up the street. Just go up the couple of stairs. Great. So uh, thanks, Clive, for that call. And uh, Sue from Honolulu, we want to welcome you to Bike Marks Cafe. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm wondering, I have two questions. I'm wondering about schools that are in Waikiki and how, what kind of preparedness plan they have and how to get the word out to families that are at the schools. And my second question is about a um, local generated earthquake and what kind of tsunami, uh, what kind of time we have before a tsunami would hit. Sounds like we have one question for each expert. Oh, Thank yeah. You. Okay. The school's one we will give to Mel. Okay. Uh, within the, the coastal community uh, are located uh, state schools as well as private schools. But generally speaking, the schools have an evacuation plan. And they uh, will be required, more than likely, to evacuate outside of the the zone. Um, I don't know what specific uh, school that, you know, you're particularly interested in. 
but I would certainly contact the school uh, to find out more about their specific evacuation plan and how, more importantly, how they're planning to contact uh, each of the, the particular parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to uh, understand not only the plan, but also, um, I guess, uh, how they're planning to contact and where they're more than likely going to be uh, rendezvousing or, you know, uh, gathering uh, outside uh, and being uh, safe uh, for all the uh, children as well as uh, the school staff, if you will. So every school is required to have a plan, particularly if they're in that Especially area. if they're in the uh, evacuation zone. So you should yes. request that, I think. I mean, I, might, I, will, I would be surprised. I will check if Mililani High School has so a I would, evacuation plan. And again, each, each school would have their own plan, and I would assume that given the amount of uh, uh, preparation time, uh, it would you know, perhaps vary from having the parents come in and pick up the kids? And well, or, or, no. more than likely not. We, we would not encourage the parents to uh, return to the school uh-huh. to extract uh, the uh, individual students. We depend on the schools, They're especially the coastal schools. We participate in their exercises. Uh, they have plans. I don't know what the exact plan uh, is for each one of them, uh, but we do participate on an annual basis. And they're very efficient and proficient in terms of making and accounting for all their students. Okay, and and uh, Gerard, you were, I, yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, I, I have I have been to many schools, and I've uh, I've helped some of them with their plans, mm-hmm. um, and and I and yes, every school has a plan, right, right? And and they're all competent. They all exercise the plan, and it's really important, I think, for parents to to trust the school to get the kids out of the zone. I got it. Rather and, than and rushing into the zone. Rather right. than, now, now, of course, and, and this is why it's absolutely essential for people to think about what they're going to do when there is a warning. Think about it now rather than make up, you know, rather than play it by ear when it mm-hmm, actually happens. Mm-hmm. Because your kids are in school and your immediate reaction is to go grab the kid. Mm-hmm. And, and so, okay, so the kids are being evacuated. You go down and grab your kid, and now the teacher is missing a student. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, the, it, trust them. The other thing you're doing, of course, is by going into the evacuation zone, and, and you may get stuck there because of traffic. You're right. actually putting yourself at hazard. Right. And what your child wants when it's all over is for, to have a parent to come home to. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, now uh, her her second question I thought was also telling because we're talking about a, a, a an extreme event in the Aleutians. We would have some time and ex- some time to discuss, evaluate, prepare. But I've I've always, I mean, especially uh, having uh, studied for a while on the Big Island, know that one of the scenarios that people talk about is uh, maybe a, a flank collapse on on the cone, on the Hilo side or something. And the amount of time we would have to prepare is much shorter. Okay, well, the the likely sources. Um, the sources we really need to worry about from the uh, from the Big Island are earthquakes, such as the the uh, the Kalapana earthquake of 1975, or, or the uh, slightly bigger 1868 Kau earthquake, both of which generated tsunamis. Those were both on the on the Puna Kau coast, the southeast coast. Um, the the bad news for the rest of the state would be if there was a big earthquake on the Kona coast, and uh, that would be bad news for Kona because it's a very severe earthquake and it's going to cause a lot of damage but but the other thing is the tsunami hits that coast in about five minutes uh, and it also rushes up the island chain and it reaches the south shore of Oahu after half an hour um, in an event like that 
we will issue, we will get a warning out, and we're pretty darn sure we can do it in about three minutes. And it, this is this is actually pretty neat. That um, for a distant event, there is a, there's this coordination call. We compare notes, and, and all the counties all decide. Okay, we're all going to hit hit the. The, the, the sirens together, and then it will be coordinated with the crawler on the TV and everything else. If it's local, it's up. They have just transferred all that responsibility to us at the warning center. I just pick up the Haywas phone, the Hawaii warning system phone, and I just say, "This is a tsunami warning center. We just had a big earthquake. We think there's a tsunami. All counties sound your sirens." And and the state, the, the county warning points thing, and the nine one one operators in each county. They have the switch right there to throw to turn the sirens on, and they throw the switch. Mm-hmm. And and so from us figuring it out to the time the sirens sound is no more than a few seconds. Mm-hmm. So th- within three minutes, so you, you still have you still have like twenty five minutes or so before the tsunami arrives. The nice thing about a tsunami coming from the Big Island is that the earthquakes are limited in size by the dimensions of the volcanoes themselves. And, and so the biggest earthquake you can get is going to be like a, a high 7 or maybe a, a magnitude 8. And that's a fairly small area, and that means the wavelength is not very long. So, so those waves actually die down pretty quickly, and also they don't get very far on shore before the trough comes along and the wave then the water drains away again. So... Um, the shoreline, the beach is dangerous, and maybe the first block in from the beach, but, but beyond that, uh, you're probably okay, mm-hmm. e- except in very low-lying areas. So, Now, one of the things that I was very impressed about was the fact that, uh, you know, the, the uh, announcement of this uh, sort of thousand-year event, uh, the potential for it to happen in the Aleutian Islands, the, the revision of the maps. And, and Mel, you guys are out there now with about 17... Uh, workshops and and public uh, sort of outreach uh, uh, seminars for the community to better understand what it is that Gerard here is sort of describing. So, what are you what are you sharing at at some of these uh, workshops? Uh, right now, we've already conducted three, so we have fourteen uh, remaining. Uh, one is at Aia uh, tonight mm-hmm. at seven o'clock, if you will. Uh, but yes, we have fourteen yet to be scheduled. Uh, we're sharing uh, some background information, uh, you know, the development of the uh, extreme uh, tsunami scenario, uh, the methodology to some extent. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the, we're demonstra- uh, not demonstrating, we're actually uh, displaying those particular maps, if you will, the entire island of Oahu, and those specific areas of concern, if you will. Uh, the importance of the public outreach uh, is the public has an opportunity to uh, ask questions, provide uh, issues or concerns, if you will, but also the opportunity, as we saw in Einheina, uh, to share some historical or anecdotal type information that uh, will contribute to us doing further analysis and perhaps maybe adjusting our proposed uh, draft plans mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we have. So this is an opportunity for the public to learn, 
about the extreme tsunami scenario, but also interact with us and, and maybe share some anecdotal type information. Now, Gerard, um, both Bert and I are are, are um, very en- enthusiastic about disaster preparedness. You know, ham ham radio licenses, uh, going through cert, um, and of course, when there is an event, we we greatly enjoy and are reassured by your presence. What is the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center doing on on its end in terms of uh, public awareness for uh, these revised uh, information? Um, actually, not. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I have made myself available to, to, to the city and county. I see, I see. Um, unfortunately, it comes at a bad time for us because we were sort of in the middle of transitioning to our new facility on Ford Island. Oh, that's right. That's right. And, um, and so we've got people busy with that. Uh, and, but mostly that requires sort of, um, t- sort of deep computer know-how and technical nuts and bolts, which is not my forte. <laughs> so, so that's why um, uh, I am, I'm coming to all of these, well, not all of them, but as many as I can. I guess I, I, I think I, ne- I can actually make eight of them. Uh, so. Right, right. Wow, that's right. pretty good. We are reaching out to, uh, you know, Gerard here as well as some of the other subject matter experts. So there will be opportunities to interact uh, they're all busy, so what we're trying to do is adjust uh, uh, their particular schedules to fit uh, and attend as many of our opportunities that we'll have. So we, um, I think uh, there's a, a link for all the uh, upcoming uh, workshops, and I have a list of it, so I'll put it up on our show notes. And uh, you want to share the Pacific Tsunami website? Um yeah, I <laughs> that's okay. I'll put it. Yeah, up I mean, on our, I, I, I I just tell people to Google Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. So yeah, that's yeah. easier. Ptwc.weather.gov. That's right. Is Thank one of the you. ways yeah. to get. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Great. So, Gerard is the senior geophysicist at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, and of course, Mel Kaku is the director over at the Department of Emergency Management uh, with the city and county of Honolulu, and he's heading out to IEA to do one of the workshops right after this show. But we want to thank you both for joining us. Okay, well, certainly appreciate that. And you can always visit us at our website, uh, www.oahudem.org. Right. Fantastic. Thank we'll you, Gerard. Thanks for having us. And, and uh, um we, we, we take every opportunity for outreach. You know, thank you for helping us educate people. Our sure pleasure. Thing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Next week, we'll talk about massively open online courses. And if you've, if you've missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can e- email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at ByteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Always with a song called Nicks of Kin. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.